You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Um, open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible this morning, um, just slide your hand up. We would love to bring you one. We want you to, to be seeing that uh, what we're teaching is from God's Word. It's not from man's thoughts or opinions, but it is from Him and from Him alone as He has revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures. And uh, we are currently studying through uh, the book of Genesis together. And uh, we're learning about our foundations of who we are and who we are in light of Him and more importantly, who our God is according to his word. And so welcome to church. It's good to have you here with us here this morning. We know that it's a busy day during the middle of Stampede and, and Chris, or Christmas vacation, summer vacation. Uh, people are all out doing all kinds of things, but it's so good to have you here this morning. Let me start this morning with a little poll while you've already turned your Bible to chapter 3. A little poll here. Who has, who has pets in their home? Oh, that's not that many, unless I can't see your hands. All right, who has, who has dogs? All right, who has cats? Okay, it's a pretty good mix. Now, let, let me ask you this. Have you ever walked by your dog or your cat when they're just lazing around in the sun uh, and, you, and you just kind of look at that dog or that cat and you're like, man, I wish I had your life. All right, just eating, just doing nothing, lazing around, Right? Yeah, you got to go outside to go to the bathroom, but that's about the worst of it, right? I wish I had your life, right? No stress, no worries, no job pressures, no relational struggles. Um, when life is hard, do you ever envy the life of your dog or cat? Well, let's be honest, a life without trouble or stress or turmoil is, is kind of an attractive thing. I mean, who wouldn't want that? But the truth is, is that we are human, and if we've lived any amount of years, friends, it really doesn't matter, it really doesn't take much time to learn that life isn't easy. That in fact, as good as life is at moments, life can be pretty hard, or even really hard. And sometimes we can wonder to ourselves, why does it have to be so hard? Well, as we've been studying our foundations through the book of Genesis as Everything up to uh, this point in chapter 1 and 2 has been good and very good in God's incredible creation, especially in the Garden of Eden, right, as God's very presence is dwelling with man. As we've now arrived in, in chapter 3, as we're returning to the scene of the greatest crime ever, uh, we've been learning already why all of a sudden things in this world are now hard. We've seen how through uh, the secret uh, or the serpent's tempting whisper and a listening ear and two willing hearts, how sin and shame and death has now come into the world. And then with all of that, we see and we've been studying the just consequences for the committing of such a great cosmic treason against our holy God. As last week we witnessed God so faithfully pursuing Adam and Eve, even in their sin, as they were fearfully trying to evade him, we've seen him call out to them, and he gave them an opportunity to fess up, to come clean. 
And then we witnessed um, how Eve herself uh, was the one who gave the fruit, but then how Adam just so willingly ate it that he was with her. But then when God confronts Adam, what we see here is that, that Adam ends up blaming his wife, right? She's the one that gave me the fruit. And then in that, he also blames God for giving him this wife. And then as God turns to Eve, we see uh, her turn to blame the serpent, right? What we've seen here, that when it came to the very first sin, and as they are confronted by God in their sin, everybody's pointing fingers at each other. There's no humble confession. There's no repentance. There's no sorrow. But rather, there's just prideful deflection, the same thing that we're so prone to doing to this day. And so the Lord, God, then set out to rightfully judge all three of them. And he judges them in the order of sin's entrance into the world and the parts that each played within that. And so he started with the serpent. We looked at this last week. He ultimately cursed the serpent to the lowest and the most despised positions in all of creation. He said, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Right, Satan, who was once this angel of angels, is now the lowest of the lowlifes. And God puts nothing less than enmity between him and the woman, right, between her offspring and his. He is cursed above all creatures. But then with that curse, and then with that judgment, we also see the greatest promise ever that even in, in this sin, even in this rejection and rebellion against God, in Satan's curse, we see a blessing for mankind, right? In the judgment of Satan, we see God's mercy towards us. As God said in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, Right, we see the very first revealed promise of a coming Savior, one whom Satan will spurn, but one who will ultimately turn around and crush his very head. Friends, perhaps the greatest beauty revealed throughout God's word is this gospel reality that in judgment there is salvation. That in the curse there is a blessing and there is mercy and there is grace. Now, as we're going to turn to the judgment of Eve and then the judgment of Adam here today, what we're going to witness is the fallout that they receive due their sin. We're going to see the why and the how the world and life has all of a sudden become so hard and that it is still hard to this day. But again, through that, what we're also going to be seeing so fully and so beautifully is a pattern of merciful judgment that all there, although there are real and dire consequences for such sinful treason against God, with God's rightful judgment, there is astonishing mercy and grace and hope. So in chapter 3, verses 16 to 24, it reads here, To the woman, he said, that's God said, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, yes, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we get to hear from you. We thank you that you have, uh, by your Holy Spirit, you have inspired men to write your very word to us. We look to your word as your all-sufficient revelation of yourself, that it is the all-sufficient good news of Jesus Christ, the revelation that man can find salvation and they can find it in Christ alone. We thank you from the beginning of this book, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, your Bible is pointing forward to one person, to one Satan head crusher, Jesus Christ himself. And we pray today as we look at these curses, as we look at the curse and the blessing as found within the judgment of the woman and the judgment of man, that you would teach us, you would guide us, you would exhort us, you would train us in all righteousness, that you would equip us to follow after you with all of our hearts, that your spirit would do a big and deep work within us to produce more faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. We're picking up where we left off last week. We've seen us already with Satan in the judgment of the serpent, but now we're looking at the judgment of Eve and then Adam. As we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. But with God's rightful justice, there is astonishing mercy and grace and hope. We saw that through the serpent's curse and blessing, that there is hope. We also are going to see that as well in the woman's curse and blessing. In verse 16, we see here that God is talking to the woman now. He's judging the woman and he says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, as we remember the, the very reason that Eve was created in the first place, we look back to Genesis 2, 18, and we see that the reason she was created was that it wasn't good that man should be alone. And he said, I will make a helper fit for him. As was commanded to Adam, he was commanded to take dominion of the earth. He was commanded to tend and to keep the garden, to work the garden. And he was also commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And so being fruitful and multiplying couldn't happen with just Adam alone. No, he needed a helper. Just as God created the animals to multiply through reproduction, requiring both male and female counterparts, so too it is with humanity, right? He designed there to be a counterpart for Adam. This is somebody who is created in the image of God. This is somebody who is created equal in essence, someone like Adam, but yet someone who is so uniquely different, someone with vital biological differences and construction, equipped with the ability to be able to bear and to carry and to birth and to nurse children. And so because of this need, God created the woman from Adam's rib, and she became what? Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. 
And as God responded to this completing companion, this complimentary helper, this celebrated treasure, he created the first marriage. Right As we already studied back in Genesis 2.24, it said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And through that we see that there is this one flesh union, which involves the act of intimacy that a husband and a wife are to share together alone. And this is to be shared out of love and closeness for sure, but primarily... This process is meant for procreation. This is for being fruitful and multiplying. This is something, again, that man cannot do on his own, which is really highlighting the miraculous, celebrated, and definitive vital role that all women play in the birthing of children. And so the plan going forward before the fall was this to take place without shame. This was to be a painless thing, This was to be something that was just fruitful and abundant and easy. But now, because of the serious nature of, of the woman's part, the woman's role in the fall, the serious offense against God's goodness and his integrity and his authority and his holiness, there is now repercussions for her sinful rejection and rebellion. There's consequences for sin. And there's consequences for her lack of ownership when she was confronted, right? She blamed the serpent. What was once meant to be such a pure and unashamed blessing has now become tainted and stained and distorted by the curse of the fall. That what was once meant to be so fruitful would now be marked with strife and suffering that what once was designed to be nothing but life-producing bounty is now going to be marred with the sting of death. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And again, he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. As Eve played her part in, in giving birth to sin, so now giving birth would suffer the consequence of that sin through pain. And friends, to this day, as beautiful and as amazing and as miraculous as bearing children still is, it's still so marked with pain, isn't it? It's still so marked with pain. From just the physical pain that you ladies so bravely experience during the grueling process of a successful pregnancy, to then also the grievous pain that so many experience through unsuccessful pregnancy. Friends, the troubles we face around pregnancy is all due to our sin, the original sin in the garden and our continual sin to this day. Death spread to all because what? All sinned. Not that you can draw conclusive lines that your specific suffering in this area is due to this specific sin or that specific sin, no. But generally, the whole world, all women, are suffering somewhat in this area. I will multiply your pain. From menstrual pain 
to pregnancy discomfort, to tremendous birthing pain, to internal complications, to miscarriage, to birth defects, to stillbirths, to infertility. As a woman just so naturally has this God-given desire to so deep within her, so uh, stamped on her own image from God to get pregnant and to have babies. The reason that it's so hard now is because we live in a fallen world. We're no longer in the garden with God where everything would have actually been perfect. No, we live in an imperfect, fallen, cursed world where the blessing of pregnancy and children is tainted by pain. And friends, we brought it upon ourselves, and this is hard stuff. As many of you know or, or may not know, you know, Kim and I have the blessing of, of two sons. Now they're grown men. So sometimes you may be wondering, why did we only have two? Well, the answer to that is that as much as we're blessed with our, our two boys to have children by the grace of God, the truth is that we would have had more if we could have. In fact, in our early years, Kim and I would dream of having a big family, right, as many as the Lord would give us. But sadly, along the way, the curse of the fall would hit us square in the face, over and over again. So it started with a miscarriage, which then turned into two, which then soon after, I remember Kim lying on a hospital bed in the emergency room, heading into emergency surgery as she was internally hemorrhaging due to a tubal pregnancy. And then because of our desire to continue and prayers for more children, we ended up suffering more miscarriages up to the final blow of a second tubal pregnancy, which again resulted in surgery again, which then removed all hope of having any more children on our own or even having any kind of ethical conception on our own. Now, it's hard for us to remember these difficult times, much harder for Kim, for sure. As a man, you, you suffer through it and, and you're strong for your wife, but for you women, the one whom God gave you such a strong maternal desire, it is so extremely difficult for you and it is extremely devastating. And our hearts are with you in all of that. Now, that's a part of our story, if, if we could point out any way that we have suffered in life, that would be an area for us. It was the area of childbirth. But what we also know in it is that we're not alone. No, the curse of childbearing is everywhere. And we even know how within our church family, we feel that pain. You feel that pain. You experience that. We know that. How in just the short lifespan of our church, we have women among us who have had difficult and dangerous pregnancies 
how there's been women who have been suffering miscarriages after miscarriages, birth complications, often suffering in shame and silence and devastation. How a number of our women right now are suffering infertility. Right? Why God? Why God? Why not? Why not me? Our hearts and our love and our prayers go out to you because the pain is real. The sting is so evident. If you are suffering in this and you need to talk, come and talk to us. Come talk to Kim. She would love to talk with you about that. We are always here for you. Don't hesitate to call. We know what you're going through. And also on a pastoral note, as we know that losing a child or struggling with infertility can sometimes feel unresolved or forgotten, or it's not even given the attention it deserves. Um, we had a visitor come to our church, and, and she shared with us how their church, I think it's in Wales, they have an annual memorial for these children that are lost. And so uh, we want to actually be pursuing that. And so if you're interested in that with us, we believe that would be a great healing process for you. And so come talk to me. We want to plan a time together an annual time together um, because this is such an ongoing problem that we face um, just as people living in this world. Well, as this was such a primary way that Eve was promised to suffer for her actions, as we trace out childbearing throughout the scriptures, it was real, it was a prevalent experience for so many in the Bible. I mean, if you just think about Sarah, you think about Rebecca, you think about Rachel, Remember their stories, barrenness, right? Remember also that Rachel tragically died while giving birth to Benjamin. The birth issues of the fall just in the book of Genesis alone are massive. And as the people of God hearing about the curse of childbearing are about to enter into the promised land as it was with Eve, there was a blessing along with the curse. As the Israelites would have known well and experienced amongst their generations, they would have experienced the pain and the suffering in this area of childbearing. As God is making a covenant with them for this new land, he says in that new land, as he's given them his law, he says in Exodus 23, 26, none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Right, as God is promising them this land of blessing, and as he called them again to obey his good commandments, he promised blessing in this area. So there's this curse, but then there's also this promise of restoration and blessing to come. But as it is with humanity, as it is with us, as we have also chosen to rebel in the footsteps also of our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, so the suffering has also continued. Uh, we see it in the scriptures again with the barrenness of Hannah. Right? She prayed and she prayed. She poured out her soul to God until the Lord blessed her with the prophet Samuel. We know that from the scriptures, the mother of Samson was once barren and many others. And there was many miscarriages that wouldn't have been recorded. And countless babies would have died. I mean, just think about David and Bathsheba as well. And then even into the New Testament with the barrenness of Elizabeth, right, the mother of John the Baptist. And then, friends, right up until this day, when statistics, according to the World Health Organization, tells us that 48 million couples 
live with infertility right now in this world. Across our globe, there are 23 million miscarriages every year. Women are still dying giving birth to babies. Friends, the curse has spread and it keeps on doing damage. We cannot escape it. And it's here, why? It's here because of our sin. We live in a fallen, suffering, dying world. Now it may be tempting to wonder why God would do such a thing. Why would God allow this? You may be even wondering yourself at times as you experience this kind of tragedy, God, why me? I mean, I I would be a great parent. We would make great parents. I mean, look at that family. Look at how many kids they're having. Can't I just have one? They've got enough. As much as I understand that frustration, I get your pain and understand your hurt in this area. The answer to all of this may not be what you want to hear of why them and not you. And the answer is just simply because God is sovereign. That we live in a fallen world. And that your particular suffering in this childbirth area lands just squarely within the mystery of God's good plan even though it doesn't feel like it. That we're no longer in the perfection of the garden. We're no longer in the presence of God. This is the consequence for our sin. And we're not in the perfection of heaven yet. Friends, this world is broken and the effects are real and painful and present. But Christ is coming back. He is going to make all things new. The answer to why you and or why not you is all wrapped up in the mystery of God's sovereign will whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are not our ways, but in a God who is always good. And he is working out all things together for our good, even this. He allows us to suffer. He allows us to suffer in order to further conform us into his image, even in this. Now with all of this, the very fact that Eve wasn't struck down immediately for her sin, again reveals God's mercy that comes with his judgment. And the fact that childbirth is now marred and that this would still continue, the fact that she actually would still have children and that the world would continue to have children is this blessing that is amidst the curse. I mean, just think about it. From one woman, there are now 7.75 billion people in this world. And then even more than that, Even in light of the curse, how if you look down to Genesis 3.20, it says the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The blessing amidst the curse, and we already talked about this a little bit, the blessing amidst this curse, even on the childbearing, that it's going to be really hard, is that there is that promise from Genesis 3.15 that there is a coming head-crushing offspring, right? Right? 
And this is going to come through the generations and generations of scarred, childbearing women. And it's ultimately going to come through a virgin birth in Bethlehem. So many hundreds of years later. The birth of our Savior. Right? Eve as the mother of all living, though it is scarred, though it is painful, is going to produce the Savior to come. And so we're going to suffer this curse until Christ returns. And as the pain is, is felt, we need to remember the cause. I mean, God is revealing in Genesis these issues because we need to remember them. Because we can be so prone to ask the question, why? Well, this is why. But God is good. God is sovereign. And God is merciful even in this. Now, as far as the Next section goes here. What we see along with the pain of childbirth is a second major consequence of the fall for the woman, and it has everything to do with her relationship to the man. All of a sudden, the marital relationship, the interaction of men and women is going to get harder. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that word translated desire here in the Hebrew, chuka is only used three times in the whole Bible. And it's an interesting word choice because in the two other places that it's used in Scripture, it has quite different meanings. In Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 11, this word desire speaks of the intimate desire between a husband and a wife. But then in Genesis 4, 7, the same word is used to describe evil desire. And so we have to ask ourselves, which one is it? Is it sexual desire? As in now, all of a sudden, Eve is going to have a stronger desire in that area towards her husband? Or is it in the nearer context used by the same author just in one chapter later? Right? Remember, context is king, right? And so to define this word, word best, it's always best to stick to the nearest canonical context in chapter 4, in the beginning of Genesis, the context of the very sons of Adam and Eve. We haven't studied this yet, but we're going to, but it's going to be found within the context of where Cain is so jealous of Abel's offering be accepted by God that he ultimately ends up murdering his brother. And as God warned Cain before he killed his brother, he says to him in Genesis 4-7, And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, that's the same word, its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. This is the same uh, understanding of what we would, we would understand for your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You see a lot of reflection going on there. But he shall rule over you. And so the definition of this word desire here, friends, is not a good desire as used in Song of Solomon, but it's the same evil, sinful, contrary desire as witnessed in the story of Cain and Abel. And so as you may notice in your uh, English Standard Version, which is the version we commonly use here, if you, if you look in there, you'll see that they have the word contrary. That's where it comes from. Contrary desire. Nuance from chapter 4. 
And so the second consequence of sin here for the woman is that instead of being the pure, innocent, willingly submissive helper that she was designed to be, now there is going to be a propensity to have a contrary desire towards her husband. Right? That she's going to naturally want to go her own way, away from his leading. Kim and I often joke about this when we're in a parking lot and heading back out from the store trying to find the car. And I, I know the car's over here. Kim might think it's over there. And, and she starts going her way over there. And I just kind of whisper or say, Genesis 3.50? <laughs> now we're just joking. But in all seriousness, what we see here is that the very root of relational fallout on the part of the woman, yes, man has his own part for sure. We're going to get to that. But as the woman's desire is now bent towards being contrary. We see that in our fallen world everywhere. We see that as her original design is to be a godly helper, but now that that design is now marred by sin, that she is going to have a contrary desire for her husband. So ladies, the reason you really don't want to follow your husband at times is not because he can barely dress himself. It's not because he just makes irrational decisions. No, the core reason that you don't want to follow him willingly is because you don't naturally want to follow him. Right? Your, your natural desire is to, to be contrary. That you tend to think in your mind that, why would I follow that guy? Yeah, I know better than him. In fact, if anybody should be leading this thing, it should be me, right? And so you may question him and, and battle him. and Maybe you don't allow him the room he needs to lead. Now this may not be overtly visible in your life and marriage, and especially as Christians, because we want to grow in this area, but even though it may not be overtly expressed, isn't that the argument that goes on in your heart sometimes? I, I don't believe him. I'm not sure I can really trust him. I think my way is better. And so you pull away from your role, maybe as a willing, submitting helper, and you, you begin to do what you can to manipulate the situation, right? to try and get things going your way. Or maybe you're just so bold to say, hey, I'm leading this thing. You're incompetent. I'm doing it. Now, ladies, please know that as, as much as we can agree, men can be passive, Right? Men aren't leading the way they ought to. Can we also say that maybe a part of that problem is because he doesn't have enough room to lead? That somebody else, namely you, may be wearing the pants, as we used to say? That he may not have enough room to lead. That he may not have an, enough room to even mess up. Or may, he may not have enough room to, to get back up and to do it the right way, to learn. I mean, before the fall, he was the one who was designed to lead. This is his God-designed role, and the reality is, is that that has not changed. This was given before the fall. Although now he's going to lead in a fallen way, that no less discredits his role to lead. That's why Paul taught in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That even though your heart may be saying, I can't give up that kind of control, or, or I don't think I could even do that, the word of God says it is so. 
that this is good, this is what's right, this is what I have commanded, that in fact, when you actually make room for him to lead, you're also going to find yourself more content. You're going to find yourself more fulfilled. You're going to find yourself more satisfied within the role that God has designed you to be because this aligns to his original design before the fall. Now, nobody is saying that a woman's insight is not to be valued and heard and respected and held by your husband with high regard. Absolutely, it should, as she has been created in the image of God in equal essence with her husband, yet she is differentiated by role. A good and godly marriage strives against the twisting and the distortion of the fall. We're called to strive against our nature in Jesus Christ. And we do this in the gospel, in the strength of the Spirit. We put off the old fallen man or the old fallen woman, and we put on Jesus Christ. We put on the new man in his resurrection power. And instead of being suspicious of the other, we need to always be suspicious of ourselves first. So ladies, because this is the focus here, be aware of your flesh. Be aware of your heart that wants to rise up. Be watching for your tendency to want to rebel against your husband. Right, as we rebelled against God, you're gonna wanna rebel against your husband. So ladies, you may be thinking that we're picking on you here, but guys are next. Because as God says that her desire will be contrary to her husband, what does the text reveal about the man? It says, but he shall rule over you. Friends, the first part of man's curse also starts in verse 16. But he shall rule over you. As we first witnessed how such a blessing Eve was to Adam when God created her and brought her to him, in chapter 2, how did Adam respond, right? In chapter 2, verse 23, he's proclaiming, he's exclaiming. This is the first song in Scripture. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is an absolute ecstatic delight in her perfect, beautiful, helping partnership, but then in just a matter of a few verses later, it turns into blaming her and accusing her. Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Really what he's saying is that as this woman was supposed to be my helper, God, she is to blame. She wasn't being very helpful in that moment. It's all her fault. She gave me the fruit. And just even in that quickness to throw her under the bus, just as the woman will now sinfully seek to be contrary, so Adam and all men from there on out will now have a propensity to naturally and sinfully lead and rule women in an overbearing, domineering, harsh manner. That even though Adam's leadership role is pre-fall, good design, from the forbidden fruit here on out, he will, attend, he will um, tend to abuse this role. And it will be distorted against the original good design. And he will distort this and he will use this according to his own fallen will, his own darkened purposes. 
And so initially and generally, people, as we think about this, just think about, just think about the abuses of male leadership over the centuries. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about the good design of male leadership, right, as if male leadership is a result from the fall. It is not. That was given before the fall. I'm talking about the abuses and the misuses of that male leadership since the fall. As God created the man, right, physically stronger, physically bigger, and as he has also given him the role to lead his wife, as he is now bent towards taking advantage, he's bent towards taking advantage of his advantage. And the scripture speaks of women being the weaker vessel, primarily physically and even emotionally more sensitive. We need to think about how over the centuries men have abused his position and his power over women, as it may just start out with a propensity to disregard the thoughts and the ambitions and the voice of the woman in general, to think lowly of womanhood with respect to manhood, as this can extend to certain various extremes to the absolute domination of women in certain contexts and and cultures, leading to little or no freedom at all for the woman. Friends, we can see how the curse has so infected the primary relationship that God originally designed to be good. And we see that witnessed across our planet, across our cultures, across all generations. I mean, when you just think about how in the earliest years of Genesis... In Genesis 12, we get some insight into this, how Abraham himself, he ultimately failed to lead and to protect his wife, Sarah. Right? He sought to protect himself over her as he claimed to Pharaoh that she was just his sister in order to protect himself. He basically trafficked his wife. And he lied. He traded her safety for his safety. He put himself over her. In a sense, that's ruling her in a domineering way by throwing her to the wolves for his own safety. We also see this scenario <coughs> unfold with his, or with Isaac and Rebekah. As Isaac tells Abimelech that, again, she is his sister. Again, it's all for self-protection. Even Abimelech has more respect as he confronts Isaac with this. In Genesis 26.10, Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. We see this so clearly in the fact that the patriarchs started having multiple wives when the original design was one. Even in the fact that Jacob had two wives, the scriptures teach us that it was Rachel whom he loved, but Leah was hated. The fact that there is records of incest and extramarital affairs and rapes. Even as David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery, and then his son ends up having 700 wives and 300 concubines, and on and on and on it goes. Friends, since the fall, all of a sudden, men were prone to leading with self-seeking, advantage-taking, overbearing harshness. And as we see today's adultery numbers, as we know of the 
Me Too movement, Me Too issues, as we know of marital abuses, as we know of sex trafficking issues, from the Burka to the Harvey Weinsteins to the Bill Cosbys to the Epsteins to the countless stories of men abusing their power to suppress and diminish and devalue the beauty and the glory of women. We see that the consequences of the fall is distorting and destroying what God first brought together as being very good. And so men, husbands, young men, as you, as, as I, are born with this same Adamic tendency, we have to get a hold of it right now. We have to get a hold of it in the gospel. You have to look back into what God originally designed, how he designed you to lead before the fall, to lead amidst an equality with your wife, yes, differentiated by role, but equal in essence. We need to lead with love and humility, with respect and celebrating women at all costs, to lift them up instead of tearing them down. Although we may not be on the extreme spectrum there is still a part of our hearts that we need to be aware of. That we will tend to want to rule over her in a domineering way. That there is this old fleshly man, a part of us, that wants to rise up. And so in the gospel, in the strength and the conviction of the spirit and with resurrection power, we need to be putting him off. And again, we need to be putting on Jesus Christ as the New Testament instructs us over and over and over again. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And don't be so quick to run her down. Don't be so quick to blame her, to accuse her, to use her for your advantage. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, right? since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. Guys, your strength over her weakness is never something to be taken advantage of. No, she is to be honored. She is to be cherished. She is to be the absolute pinnacle of, of, of all that we live for apart from God. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, in Christ, in the sacrificial gospel, there is absolutely no room for you placing yourself first. She needs to be placed first. You last. Right? It's about sacrifice. It's about the same sacrifice Christ made for his church, his bride. And out of genuine love and humility, he willingly laid himself for us. Guys, that is the standard. And that is the goal in the gospel. And so guys, as well, be suspicious of yourselves. Be suspicious of the curse of sin and, and the stain of sin that is upon you. We're naturally bent to ruling in a harsh way. And then secondly, for the man, we also see that his part in the sin also affects the world around him. His actual disobedience from God has actual, real, tangible consequences when it comes to the earth. 
Verse 17, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Right, this is the same ground that was just full of abundant blessing. And now it is going to suffer the effects of the curse. Because of who? Because of Adam. Again, as the woman is to have uh, pain in childbirth, it says here for Adam, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And all of a sudden, the earth wasn't going to readily give up its fruit so easily. All of a sudden, because of sin, it's going to be an ongoing struggle, an ongoing pain for the man. And as Eve struggles with the pain of childbearing, so Adam struggles with the pain of toil as he fights with the earth in order just to eat and to feed his family. It's now going to be so much harder for him to take dominion of the earth. It's going to involve blood and sweat and tears. It's going to be hard in this new life. And as the Lord reveals, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Right, as Adam was created from the dust, we see a reversal of creation going on here as God says you're going to return to the dust. The very earth where you came from, that very earth that's going to fight you all the way is going to one day swallow you up in death. And it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But it is the way that the Lord allowed it to become. And as much as the whole universe so incredibly still blesses us every day, as we continue to take dominion to this day, as we even reach out to the very edges of the universe of what we know, as we harvest the abundance that the earth gives, it is not easy. No, in fact, it's all very hard now. It takes so much effort as this earth is in midst of decaying and dying and suffering the effects of the fall. It is going to take all the more sweat, all the more toil to reap what we need in order to live and thrive and survive in this world. Friends, as abundantly beautiful and incomprehensibly beautiful the blessing of our universe is, the reality is, is that every facet of it has been touched by our sin, that all of creation has been infected by Adam's corruption. From just simply the weeds and the thorns and the thistle, as, as our garden may or may not have right now in our backyard, to the de disease and decay and destruction and death we experience all the time, every day, all around us, throughout our lives. Friends, it was never meant to be this way. This was because of our own doing. And it is now this way, and it is in desperate need of redemption. Right, like, not only do we need the redemption of our souls, the earth itself needs to be redeemed because of our sin. In fact, Paul teaches us this in Romans 8. Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Friends, even in the subjection of all creation due from our sin, again, there is mercy in this judgment that it was subjected in hope. 
the more stain and disease and corruption that we witness in all the universe, the more that we long for its total rescue and redemption, right? Not just for ourselves, but for the whole creation. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. And again, that is such an interesting choice of words by Paul. What do you think he's thinking about? All creation is groaning under Adam's condemnation. But then he also uses the language of birth pain, like the, the, the pain of childbearing. He's hearkening back to the beginning. Friends, if you're struggling with this world and the things of this world, if you're getting tired of it, we need to remember how it all began. And even more than that, we need to know that God has a plan of redemption. Right? Not only for you, but for all of it. The more that creation groans and the more that troubles come, the more corruption that we see, we need to long all the more for the restoration, for the redemption of not only us, but of this universe. Because that snake crusher we talked about in Genesis 3.15, as he is promised to be struck down and crushed by Jesus, this is only going to come through redemption, through Jesus Christ. As, as, as the serpent, as Satan is going to keep attacking the heel of Christ and the heel of the church, and as the evil continues to permeate this world, as we see more and more of this evil doing its work in this world, the more we need to long for redemption. The more we need to be longing for the return of Christ. And friends, he is coming back very soon. He is coming back to fully judge Satan and the demons and its offspring. He's going to cast them into the eternal lake of fire. And then with that, he's also going to destroy this sin-saturated creation. And then once for all, he is going to make all things new. This was prophesied way back in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Connection of offspring, new heavens, new earth. And as the Apostle John, the last book of the Bible in Revelation, as he sees apocalyptically, as he bears witness to the very end in Revelation 21, he says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And he saw this vision. There was a Christ on the throne saying in Revelation 21, verse 5. He said, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's this new heavens and the new earth, free from sin, free from our corruption, free from our suffering, free from our childbirth problems, free from the pain of childbirth loss. And as we go back to just thinking about the pain of childbirth, Kim and I were just talking this week just about these children that we lost because we know that a person is a person at conception. These are people that are, these are children of God who are in his presence right now. 
And it's just interesting to think that we're going to see them one day. The end will be full, or will be, will be absent from all conflict between man and woman. There'll be no more strife between us any longer. It'll be free from abuse, free from the pain of abuse. The desires will be only good and perfect and pure forever. There'll be no more curse of the ground. There'll be no more thorns and thistles. As we're going to be ushered once again into the garden, the garden is going to freely yield its abundance in the new Jerusalem. There's going to be the tree of life at the very center. There's going to be the the eternal, personal presence of God forever and ever and ever, where we will be free from death and disease. And this is where Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So as we look back to our beginnings, as we look back to the curse of the woman and the curse of man, as much as it's upsetting, as much as it's hard, all the more, all of that needs to cause our eyes to look forward to the return of the one who is going to make all things new, the new heavens and the earth. And we are going to be with him forever if you are in Jesus Christ. Friends, it is hard here, but the end is near. Christ is coming back. The best is yet to come. And if you're in him, that means if you believe and you trust in him and in him alone, Behold, all things will be new forever and ever and ever. And so the question is, is are, you, are you in Christ? Have you turned from your sin and truly trusted in him? Are you owning your sin? You know, as Adam and Eve were confronted in the garden, like we talked about last week, they weren't quick to confess. They weren't quick to repent. In fact, we don't even see it. What do we see them doing? They started blaming each other, they started covering themselves up, and they started to hide from God. The question is, is where are you? The same question God asked last week in the garden to Adam and Eve, where are you with him right now? You can't cover up your sin. He sees it all. He just calls you to repent of your sin and to trust in him alone for salvation.